sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hey, uh, I'm your pal Nate Larkin uh, here with Aaron Porter here to discuss the great issues of the day, the great issues of life, not necessarily the trivia of the news, what it's showing up in today's headlines. What's, what's, what's behind the headlines? What's the running theme throughout your life and mine? Wow. Shit. That was deep. <laughs> well, I just finished uh, Neil Postman's book. I don't know if you're, uh, you know, that's a classic book. Entertaining Ourselves to Death? Yes. Oh, yeah. My favorite. I have bought that book for at least a dozen people over my life, and it sits in our guest bedroom. Okay. Neil Postman, read it if you haven't. He was a prophet. And and, and he wrote it before the advent, the broad advent of the internet. Yeah. He was talking about television, but it was very prophetic. Very prophetic. It was in the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. If you haven't read Entertain, we can talk about this the whole time. We weren't going to talk about this, but I'm so glad. Was that your first read of it? No, no, no. Okay. It's my second, though. It had been so long since I read it, that, and I, I was in active addiction the last time I read it, so I don't know how much, it, how much of it even stuck back then. Was it, was it entertaining ourselves to death or amusing ourselves to death? Amusing ourselves it, to Amusing death. ourselves to death. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That is, yeah, I mean, it's crazy reading it now, realizing there was no internet then. Mm-hmm. He's just talking like 80s TV. And it's like, oh, my word, you got this. Hang on one second. I know what I want to do. I want to, I want to read for our listeners the introduction to that book. Because I think it's just classic. He wrote the book in 1985. And he opens talking about the famous book, 1984, George Orwell's prediction of what the world would look like with Big Brother, right? Yeah, right. So this is what he says. Mm-hmm. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came, and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Whatever else ter- the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we'll be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared most were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we'd be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us, 
Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we'd become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, the centrifugal bumble puppy. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Oh, man. Man. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And, and you know what? This, uh, I am excited about the interview today. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly excited about the age of the man we are interviewing. Mm -hmm. he's, he's a young man in his early 30s but he's a man that is confronting those very things actively mm -hmm. and has. Yes. And for all of the TikTok videos and YouTube videos that will make you fear that there are no people of this generation who do anything except swivel their hips and throw poop on a window. I don't know if that happens. I don't watch TikTok, but I can believe that would happen on TikTok. <laughs> uh, if it hasn't, there, it will. Yeah, thanks there, for the suggestion. Okay. There, there are people <laughs> of that age that want to confront this. And there's one point in the interview that I particularly love where he has come to a place much earlier than I did that says, I need to slow down. Mm -hmm. I need less information, not more. I need to engage information more. Yeah. Yeah. Not consume it. Um, and so there are so many parts of this interview that resonate with what you just read. And oh my goodness, what a wonderful interview, uh, not interview, what a wonderful introduction mm -hmm. to this interview. And man, let us know when you read that book, send that to pirate monk podcast, uh, at gmail.com and tell us what you think. Cause come on, you got to read it. But before you read it, just stay with us and check out this interview here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. And boy, are we in for a treat today. I am so excited to have as our guest, a guy who does a daily podcast for men, a Christian podcast that is biblically based and scientifically informed and casual, but direct and extremely useful. Sathya Sam is with us today. Welcome, Sathya. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I didn't get a chance to say this before we hit record, but I have a bunch of friends who are pretty jealous I get to meet Nate Larkin. Uh, you're legend in our circles, man. So thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> the legendary Nate. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've gained notoriety for something I was determined to hide for my entire life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the irony, hey? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so where are you where are you joining us from, first of all? I'm, I only get to see the inside of people's rooms when we do this. 
Yeah, so I live in a city called St. Catharines. I'm about a 15-minute drive from Niagara Falls on the Canadian mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. And then my wife and I usually spend a couple months in Jamaica in the winter because it just gets a little cold here and she's Jamaican. So that's just, I, I married very conveniently that way. <laughs> so nice on the, on the <laughs> Canadian side, were you raised on the Canadian side? Yeah, I was actually born and raised in the prairies. Uh, I tell people, just imagine a little chocolate chip on a mound of mashed potatoes. <laughs> one, little, one little Indian family in a very uh, white community, lots of farmers, that kind of idea. But uh, yeah, that's where I had my upbringing. We've always been in Canada. Um, so Canadian through and through. Wow. wow. All right. So well, we've got, we've got lots of Canadian or? friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where was, uh, where was your mashed potato? Tell us yeah, that. Yeah. Regina, Saskatchewan. So that's where oh. I was born and raised. Dad was a pastor there for 17 years, I think. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of where he got his start. But our extended family was always in Ontario. So that's what kind of brought us over to the Niagara region eventually. Gotcha. I feel like any anybody's trajectory towards sexual sobriety starts with I lived in a place that rhymed with vagina. I, I feel like there's a connection. <laughs> Oh man, yeah, that's that's a fair that's a fair comparison. I got teased a lot because we when I moved, I was twelve or thirteen years old, and uh, you could not tell kids where I was actually from because <laughs> I would just get ripped on way too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I've actually been to Regina. I spoke there for Promise Keepers Canada some years ago. That's right. Yep, they do events there all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, this is, this is very difficult. I'm filtering so many things and I don't usually have to filter anything, but I, there's so much to filter right now. Well, I am still, uh, I, I have just discovered you recently. Thank you, uh, Justin Schwind, for pointing us. I, I feel a little bit embarrassed that the, your body of work is out there and I have just now discovered you. So I've only had a chance to listen to about a half dozen of your podcasts so far. Listen to a few of your daily 15, 20 minute things, which are dynamite. Oh, thank you. And a couple of great interviews. Uh, the first of all, I'm just, I'm just stunned that you're able to put out that much content that consistently. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, I think anybody can do it, if I'm being honest. I mean, um, you, you know what it's like. You guys know what it's like when you have a struggle like this. You need help daily. Mm-hmm. and that for me is a huge motivator. But th- the honest truth is like we sit in our group coaching calls and I just have a notepad or I have something and I just listen to the questions people are asking, our clients are asking, because we figure that if they're asking it, then our listeners are probably wondering it too. And there's no shortage of questions that come up in a uh, subject matter that's as taboo as you know pornography and sexual misbehavior. So um, so I really owe it to my clients. They kind of give us the fodder and and then I just hit record and, and hopefully it comes out, you know, reasonably oh, legible. Fantastic. So, yeah. Who is the who is the we and the us in those statements? Uh, well, I, so I have a team of coaches. I, it's just a small team. There's really there's three other coaches too that that predominantly take the responsibilities. So they run a lot of the calls now. Um, I've really changed my focus this year to trying to get our message out a little bit more. So that's why I launched the book and lots of TV interviews and we're ramping up social media and stuff like that. And then I have a full-time assistant who uh, Justin would have definitely interacted with to set up this interview. And then, um, and then a, a team that kind of helps me on the marketing and the sales end of things. So uh, a bunch of help in different areas. Wow. So before Nate gets into more of the questions he had, give me a little more of the Sam background, the chocolate chip on the, <laughs> uh, 
I almost said marshmallow. That works too. Uh, yeah, but does, not yeah. a marshmallow. That yeah. works in a s'more. How about, but- how about the snowdrift? I think that works. The snow, there you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very relevant for Saskatchewan <laughs> as well. Yeah. All right. So so tell me a little of this, the, the backstory that brought you to here. Indian in, in Canada. Give it to me. I want to hear it. Okay, so uh, so yeah, we've already covered the Saskatchewan part. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and I grew up in Christian school, and so um, everything was set up for me to make reasonably good decisions in life. The odds were not stacked against me. It's not that kind of story. Mm-hmm. I, Wait, let me let me pause right now because sure. I got to understand. Dad, did Dad come from India? Was he in Canada? How did Dad get to Canada? Yeah, so th- I mean, we could do another podcast episode on this. My my dad immigrated to Canada in the seventies. He was eighteen years old, and his entire family had moved over. So he did all of his university, college education on the Canadian side. God mm-hmm. ordained, and uh, well, we've talked about Saskatchewan, so I might as well mention this part of the story. Uh, and in those days when you got ordained, they basically told you where you started pastoring within the denomination. And so they sent him into a little village of 300 people called Kincaid, uh, northern Saskatchewan. And uh, he was a single man. So needless to say, he was not meeting a lot of ladies in a village of 300. And, mm-hmm. and he, was, he was putting like ads in the classifieds, you know, back when that was a thing, trying to meet women. It wasn't happening. So he told, he actually told uh, my grandpa, he told his father, Dad, um, I'm not meeting any women. I want to get married. He's 26 years old or whatever. Uh, he said, I have, I have six weeks off this summer. Let's go back to India and find me a wife. And so they hire a marriage broker, as you do. Wow. Uh, my parents, yeah, my parents met for, they spoke for a grand total of 15 minutes. And uh, most of the conversation revolved around whether or not my mom could cook and whether or not she could handle Canadian weather and being a pastor's wife. And she checked all the boxes and they were off to the races. So that's, that's how we kind of got situated there in the first wow. place. Wow. Wow. I, I don't know what to say to that. Go on <laughs> yeah. with your story. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, so we grew, we grew up in a, in a very, uh, it was a really simple upbringing. Uh, immigrant parents is definitely a little bit interesting, but really uh, nothing to complain about. And I got exposed to pornography in the computer lab of my Christian school when I was about 11 years old. So, you know, and this guys, this was like back in 2001, you know, this is before Mm -hmm. really broadband internet, social media, smartphones, all that stuff. And, um, you know, I, you're whining about something without realizing you're talking to guys that had to humiliate themselves by going into like drugstores and gas stations and having the guy at the counter comment on what you're trying to buy shamefully. No, 100%. No, and I, I, I didn't even mean it as a complaint. I meant that, you know, it's so easy now. Like you hear of a yeah. kid getting exposed at 11 years old yeah. now. You don't think anything of it because you're like, well, right. yeah, he's got a device and the internet. Yeah. Um, but even in those days, like it was still, it was still happening, you know, relatively easily. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, I wasn't like addicted overnight. I don't think anybody is. It was just, it just planted a seed. And honestly, you know, I, I actually skipped a grade. So I was always like a year or two behind, even just from like a physical development standpoint. So most of my peers were starting to hit puberty and they would talk mm-hmm. about stuff that went right over. I had no idea what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. Totally innocent. But when I did reach that stage of life, you know, the seed was planted. Um, and, and again, it, it just became more accessible as time went on. So that's, that's a little bit of the background of kind of how so I got exposed. And was, you know, you can, was, was that the, the childhood seed of disconnection and wanting to, wanting to feel intimacy because you felt a little on the outside, both because of your family and because you had skipped a grade? Yeah, my, my big thing was always feeling good enough. 
That was, mm-hmm. that was what it always came down to. Indian culture has a lot of pressure academically. So like, I mean, I, like I said, I skipped a grade. I was high achieving, mm-hmm. uh, but always had a sense that like it was never enough, never good enough. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think with that was always attached, um, like you're saying, uh, connection. And for me, it was really acceptance, like, like emotional acceptance, not like approval. Cause mm-hmm. my parents definitely approved of me, but that emotional acceptance. And, um, that's what porn really, really offered me. There was no risk of yeah. rejection and I was good enough basically from, you know, minute one click the first click, so to speak. And, um, that's, that's kind of, that's what it was offering me. Mm-hmm. Man, I so resonate with your story. Always being the youngest kid in the class, uh, delayed uh, puberty, and then being on the outs. I was coming on the outs socially. Part of that was because I was uh, a pastor's kid and because we were told that we were a peculiar people and we could not associate too much with other people (laughs) except to witness to them. Uh, Yeah. And uh, never an object of uh, romance from my female classmates. Yeah, man, was I set up for? Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's that's where everything started. By the time I was in high school, it was a bit more normal. Still getting edu- Christian education, but you know, um, it was it was a little bit of a social thing, mm-hmm. and it was university. That's that's where I would say the roots really went deep because, um, you know, cope, coping with the stress of pursuing an education and just all the all the kind of stress that came with it porn was my coping mechanism it was kind mm-hmm. of my it was my relief and it was also my reward you know cuz mm-hmm. when you're pursuing an education you're working hard but you're not really gaining much in return uh right away so that was where um i would say i really got tangled in it and you know by god's grace it never developed into something worse i think it definitely could have cuz mm-hmm. i was really quite quite hopelessly dependent on it um, but ironically, I, w- I was studying biology. My intent was to become a psychiatrist. I lost, um, I lost three friends to suicide when I was in high school. Mm. And um, that's what kind of spawned this interest in mental health to begin with. So I'm studying pre-med and, you know, doing really well and volunteering and and connecting with doctors and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I, I kind of encountered a faith crisis because Nate, you, you might maybe experience this as well. You know, Mm -hmm. as a pastor's kid, you kind of just learn to do the stuff. Mm-hmm. So I could do the stuff, you know, I, I was part of the the worship team and I could speak eloquently about the Bible and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but, um, but really hit a faith crisis because now I was in a academic environment that basically scoffed at the idea of God or any kind of higher power. Mm-hmm. And these were smart people that I respected, you know? So I, I did a lot of soul searching again, another podcast for another day, but ultimately that's where I would say the baton kind of got passed from my dad to myself. That's where I really found my faith. Mm-hmm. And I knew when I made that decision, I knew what came with the territory, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm very familiar. I was like, okay, I, I got to stop drinking irresponsibly. Uh, I like to clean up my language a little bit, be a better representation to my peers. And I need to stop watching pornography. You know, it was, it was all so simple. It was textbook. And those first two things were no problem. They didn't have that same kind of stronghold in my life. But when it came to quitting pornography, um, that's when I, I realized how bad it was. Because no matter what I tried, I kept falling back into it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, before we circle back to that, I want to touch on as as a parent of two teenagers and two early 20s kids, there is certainly a fear based on what's put out there of what you just said mm-hmm. that the university system is a place that for a child of faith, that's a dangerous place to put your kids right now. Yeah. Because there's not a lot of bridge work between here's an education and you can also still have your faith. And yet 
you're talking about that being a catalyst to you digging into your faith. And so for any parents that have kids from, you know, I don't know, birth through their late teens, tell me, give, give me some hope for kids going into that from a place of faith that are still struggling. They're not living, you know, they're not wearing uh, ankle length denim skirts, boys or (laughs) girls, you know, they're, they're just normal kids struggling in normal ways. Sorry. Those are normal kids too. Uh, so give me a little on that because I'm fascinated. Yeah. That's a really good question, Aaron. I think, I think this is why what you guys are doing is so incredible because when I reflect back on that part of my story, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made it through. I don't think without community. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even like, I wasn't actually super plugged into like youth groups or that kind of stuff, but I had a couple of really solid Christian friends who were also relatively academic that I could just have conversations with. And, you know, I had tons of non-faith-based peers in a university environment that I would ask my questions to as well. Um, but that, that communal element was just really helpful to, I think, bounce ideas off of and, um, you know, hear different perspectives and get some clarification. And sometimes, you know, people would poke holes and like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Like you couldn't believe that and also believe this or, you know, whatever it was. Uh, but that, that was definitely the element that really got me through. And I think, I think caused me to land in a place where I found faith ultimately. Okay. Mm. So you're talking about two things there. You're not just talking about community. You're talking about a place where it's safe to ask questions. Yeah. Well, I and think those, I, I don't think it really is community if it's not safe to ask questions in my opinion. Yes. You know? Right. Right. Yes. But, yeah. but the default is let us protect our children by putting them in an environment where they never feel they have questions, uh, yeah. which is total bullshit. It's total yes. bullshit because there is no young man that doesn't have to leave the faith, faith of his father, even if it's for five minutes. And he says, yeah, I do believe what my father believed. But everybody has to question it or it's never their own. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the same way that, you know, there's no good without evil. You know, there's no, there's no faith without unbelief. Like you have Mm -hmm. to, you have to be able to ask those hard questions. I still have my doubts, you know, Um, and I, I, those are things that I still wrestle with. And that's the beautiful part of this journey. It, It makes my faith stronger if I, as long as I'm willing to actually confront them, I have no strength over something I'm unwilling to confront. And mm. so it's a much more powerful place to, to be honest and to be vulnerable about the, the unbelief, the challenges, the doubts, the questions, the concerns, whatever. That's a much more powerful place to be than to simply just, you know, shove it under the rug. Yeah. Well, I'll let Nate take this in the way he wants to. But just because you still have doubts, just know that Nate is currently writing a book called 16 Answers that will fix all of your doubts. Oh, perfect. Oh, that's great. It's, I'll never be, have a doubt again. It'll, it'll be fine. <laughs> oh, it'd be easier for me to one, uh, write one called, you know, 616 questions, I think. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, so, yeah, so bring us to a point of crisis, attorney, but where did you begin to find hope and help in this battle against Okay, so I I was probably in my early twenties, and I'm very I'm a very determined person. So you know I kind of had my my bullseye on this thing of like I'm gonna figure this thing out, you know, one way or another. And all the information I could find was you know get an internet filter on your devices. Mm-hmm. And find an accountability partner. Mm-hmm. And you know in the more spiritual circles, it would be read your Bible more, pray more. So I I did those things. You know they weren't even defaults. They were things that I was 
instructed to do or found on a blog or whatever. And um, they were all just failed miserably. You know, the, anyone can get around a filter when they really want to. My accountability partner was struggling just as much as I was. It was a lot of the the blind leading the blind. And um, the spiritual disciplines were were valuable. You know, I, I would never knock anybody who's willing to invest in that part of their life. Uh, they're still very important to me, but they weren't they weren't really solving the underlying issues. So that that I kind of reached a ceiling where I was like, man, I've I've made a bit of progress. I'm not watching it daily anymore. Maybe I'm watching it, I don't know, call it weekly or every every couple of weeks. But this is not like this is not what I envisioned for my life. You know, I know there's more out there. And no matter how hard I, I kind of increase the intensity on these things, it was just getting the same result. So uh, thankfully, you know, some of my educational background was was in psychology, and, and we had learned a lot about you know just helping people get to underlying issues. Uh, I even I got trained actually to be on like a, a mental health crisis line, that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. had some skills to do this in another person, and realized, oh, I actually need that myself. And so as I start to kind of dig deeper, get a little bit more to some um, traumas. Again, I had a very good childhood, but trauma nonetheless, some challenges, uh, some limiting beliefs about myself. Like I told you, like I always felt Mm -hmm. like I wasn't good enough. That was driving a lot of it. Um, And really, I really struggled to be vulnerable. That was a huge part of it. Um, Like nobody really knew who I was Mm -hmm. because I had so many layers of shame, kind of the self-protective as a pastor's kid. Indian culture, you really protect the family name. Um, a whole bunch of things. And then, and then again, you're, you're, I was held in a certain esteem for being high achieving academically and all that. So tons of reasons to not be known for who I really was. And those were the things that ultimately started to set me free. And it was probably a process of about two to three years of embracing vulnerability, working through some of these parts of my past, getting a better understanding of just who I am and some of the experiences that led to the, the problem. Um, that's when the needle really started to move forward. And uh, two two things that are, are probably worth mentioning. The first is um, I I had always prayed, uh, you know, God, whoever my future spouse is, because I was single at the time, uh, keep her from me until I have this dealt with. Uh, one of my mentors had just taught me that marriage is a magnifier, and um, and he said if it's a problem now, it's going to be a bigger problem later. And he really really exhorted me to kind of get it dealt with. And so I had prayed that prayer. And my second prayer was uh, God, whoever or not, uh, God, I will I will get free one day. And when I do, I pray you help me set other people free as well. And so in February 2016, I had my last relapse. Uh, November 2016 is when I, I met Shaloma, who's now my wife. And it was about two years later, December 2018, that I launched Deep Clean and some of the other endeavors I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. Before, oh, the- wait, wait, before you move forward, I got to move back, Nate. Okay. Remember what you're about to say. <laughs> you're one of a very few handful of guests that when you're telling your story are saying, I don't see that my parents were the problem. They, they, I felt loved. I felt seen. I felt hurt. All the stuff that would bring attachment. Yeah. And that's my story. And yet from elementary school, I still walked with my dog alone in the river, listening to Morrissey and Depeche Mode, feeling bad about myself and crying a lot that no one liked me, even though there was no particular reason. Yeah. And that there were places that what, we would call, okay, there's, there's trauma going on, but they were not coming from parents. And so much of the trauma conversation goes back to, and your parents fucked you up. Yeah. Oh, tell me a little bit about what you said, because I think it's, it's 
unusual, but there are a lot of listeners that hear trauma conversations that go back to your parents fucked you up and you're like, well, no, it's not that it's something else. Yeah. Well, I mean, my biggest word of caution for people who do that is you're sowing seeds when you become a parent, right? Like, uh, like we have a whole generation, my age, my age group in particular, I, I, I can advocate for them. I can't speak for other age groups, but we are so paranoid about messing our kids up because because what we've incorrectly like uh, connected is like, oh, my parents messed me up. That's why I have these problems. And now we're afraid to be parents because we don't, we know that we can like transfer these issues over, or we know that if we mess something up, we could ruin their whole lives kind of thing. And it's, it's totally incorrect perspective. Um, one of my, one of my colleagues here had, had taught me this early on. He said, it's about rupture and repair. And that was the thing, like, again, like when I look back on my parents, um, uh, the way they raised us, they didn't do things perfectly, but there was always the repair element. Like there was always the safety net where it was like, if we did ever run into conflict, if I behave poorly or if they did something inappropriate or whatever as parents, there was always the the repair part of it. Um, and that really helped me a lot. And um, I think the other thing is like, you just don't, you just don't gain anything by slandering other people. You know, and it it is the, it's the danger that of trauma becoming so normalized and mainstream is that I think sometimes people do veer off a little bit and it be, kind of just becomes this like pity party about how terrible our parents were when like, I, as far as I'm concerned, my parents did their absolute best and they weren't perfect, but um, that's all I can really ask for. And I know that God will fill in the gaps where they fell short. And so I think it's just a, it's just a perspective thing for me. Um, and so, I know but, it's, but yeah. here's the, here's the flip side. I feel the same way. I don't think my parents were perfect, but I think they tried their best and I would spend hours talking with them. If there was something wrong, like we would talk till it was done. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. But on the flip side, it makes it sometimes hard to say, yeah, there are still other types of trauma at those ages, not big T trauma. I was not abused. I was not, you know, those types of things. And I don't even like the big T versus small T because then it's putting it in this wacky, like, let's judge trauma as what's worse. Pain is pain. But for, for those who can't point to those types of relationships early on, yeah, sometimes it can be hard to accept. No, there were reasons that I was still self-soothing and finding those avenues to have false connection because I couldn't find real connection. And that can be harder for kids in some ways that don't have what people would call big T trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I mean, that was, that was my experience. It probably took me a couple of years before I really kind of like got clarity on what was going on. And and just in a nutshell, um, a lot of it boiled down to my relationship with my mom. Uh, my mom is a very, very loving person, very sweet, but uh, a lot more shy, a lot more reserved. And what I realized is in her timid kind of nature, I had perceived some of the times where she was silent, some of the, the, you know, weaker displays of affection, if I could put it that way, or lack thereof, I had perceived that as neglect. And so that kind of maternal neglect that I grew up with eventually manifested into some of the more, you know, deeper parts of my addiction. And again, like it, it, she didn't actually neglect me, right? I wasn't like a neglected child per se, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's just that it's that dynamic. And yeah, you're right. If you don't have the obvious traumas, sometimes these dynamics are a bit harder to articulate. Yeah. Mm. All right, Nate, go ahead. Well, uh, Sathya, one of the things that you offer to your listeners, the people who follow you, is, is there free, uh, there's a book that you've written. It's an ebook, yeah. which 
to offer free. It's called The Last Relapse. What a great title. Um, I wonder, I don't want to spoil the book for anybody, but I wonder if you can just tease it, hit the high points a little bit. What's that book about? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. So I detail a little bit more of my story in there. Uh, it's one of the things we encourage our clients to do is like, man, just get immersed in as many recovery stories as you can because mm-hmm. you need that hope every single day. Um, so I do share my story and we share a lot of client stories. But really what people are going to get is just a blueprint for the system that we teach uh, people to go through when they're experiencing recovery. And um, I won't go through all of it in detail here, but we basically have three pillars that we we encourage people to go through. One is building self-awareness. The second is transformation of the heart. And the third is establishing your identity or your identity in Christ if you're coming through a, a Christian lens. So those are the three things that we kind of focus on. And so we basically go into depth on uh, the biblical basis and some scientific backing for those pillars and then provide a lot of practical stuff. That's a huge part of it. The book does, also comes with a free workbook. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Does, does order matter with those pillars? Um, for us, it does, uh, just cause we've gotten like really dialed in on our system, but you know, I think if people do it in a different order, it, I don't think it's going to hinder their experience. No. Wow. Okay. Wow. Go on. Yeah. I was good. You were, you were still, you were still talking. I was just curious. No, 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 about no, no, no it's a great question. Colors. But yeah, but that's, that's, that's the, the gist of the book. And, um, and so if people, if people want to learn a bit more about a system that's been working, uh, for a lot of guys, myself included, then the last relapse is a, a place for them to learn it. And there's a workbook as well that's available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we give all that stuff away for free. Uh, we maybe we can put a link in the show notes or something. But um, but yeah, we try to make that stuff very accessible. Why do you give it away for free? What's in it for you? Uh, well, well, we charge we do charge for our our program and our coaching services on the back end. So um, so yeah, there's no ulterior motives. We're very vocal about that. We do hope that some people will read it and say, yeah, we'd love to do business with these guys. Um, but a majority of people, uh, well, I don't know if it's a majority, but a lot of people just read the book and get value from that, and that's amazing for us too. That's fantastic. Well, that just makes no sense at all. But fantastic. <laughs> like, <you can. laughs> we're, we're, I mean, we'll get to this again at the end, and I hope we're not at the end. Uh, no, we're not even close to the end. Where, where do people get this free book and free workbook? Uh, so the last relapse book.com that that'll get the ball rolling. They can get the book and then the book will explain how to get the workbook. It's pretty straightforward. So yeah, the last relapse book.com. That's awesome. All right. Uh, I wonder if you can talk to us in a little bit more detail, drop down from 10,000 feet to maybe 8,000 feet. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know why I'm, I, you know why I'm using, I, know, I do know why I'm using that uh, metaphor. Don't tell Allie, but I bought her Christmas present yesterday. I bought her a flying lesson. She's freaking 76 years old. I bought her a flying lesson. <laughs> uh, at any rate, that, that's amazing. Uh, <laughs> does, does, does she want a flying lesson? She has always wanted to fly. Wow. She's always wanted to fly. She has flying dreams. And so, yeah, <laughs> it's a short lesson, you know, but at any rate. So, we're going to drop from 10,000 feet to 8,000 feet sure. uh, uh, to talk about uh, two things. I, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about self awareness, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and I love that you focus so heavily upon identity. That's the drum that Aaron beats all the time. That's where it begins oh. with identity. Yeah. But I'm also wondering uh, uh, about community and where community, what role community plays in recovery, self-awareness yeah, okay. and community. Okay. So we, we have a motto for each of these pillars. 
And our motto for self-recovery is that if you are not aware, it cannot be repaired. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how many guys are are walking around the planet right now with all kinds of inner dysfunction and feeling the frustration of it? They know they know something's going on, but because they don't have an understanding of the inner life, they can never actually solve the problem holistically. Uh, that that's what we witness in a lot of our clients. They they don't know how to articulate their their inner life. They don't know how to tell you the emotions they're feeling, uh, why they're thinking the thoughts they're thinking. Uh, there, there's no, there's no substance. And so, uh, this was, this was my story. I was totally inept. Like I said, I was, I was a very logical, very left brain kind of personality could do those things. No problem. But when it came to relating on a more emotional interpersonal level, really lacked poor skills to articulate my own inner life. So cultivating self-awareness really boils down to two concepts. It's labeling emotions and defining thoughts. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things we really try to guide our clients through. And we find that kind of is the gateway. Like if you if you try to get somebody to to identify traumas or get deeper into the parts of their past, what we found is when they had the self-awareness, when when they were starting to build that muscle, so to speak, it just made the process of identifying traumas a lot more effective. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the premise of it. The other element is Wait, like, don't 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 switch from there. Because you're talking about something that is so dangerous in our oversaturated information world. Hmm. If I keep reading a book that gives me a new insight, surely then I have self-awareness because I've just read a new concept that I'm like, oh shit, that's a big concept. But that is not the same as self-awareness as you just described it. And I can spend my life going from book to book, podcast to podcast, having new intellectual information and never having self-awareness. And if I don't have self-awareness, then I shouldn't expect to see self-transformation. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, that's really, really well said. That's why what we do uh, is very practically driven because um, I personally don't believe that knowledge is power. I know a lot of people do, but I think I, I totally agree with you, Aaron. Like, I think it's the bane of the information age. We have mm-hmm. we have a lot of entitlement is what we have, you know, because because we think we know more than we really do. Um, I think knowledge is potential, but it's knowledge with action that real power comes from. And so the, the self-awareness component is exactly that. It is not just that you you know a new concept, it's that you're applying it. And our our emphasis is always on being able to articulate the inner life. The, the more clearly you can articulate the inner life, the better chance you have at, at recovery, in my personal opinion. And the other thing I was going to say with self-awareness is, uh, you know, a lot of solutions are very reactive. So it's like, here's what you do when you're tempted. You know, here's your five step mm-hmm. process. And, mm-hmm. and granted, we've done those things before. Like I do offer those things. But ultimately, what you want to do is you want to get to a place where you're much more preventative in nature. And self awareness is the thing that allows you to do that. It's like, oh, my jaw is clenched. I clench my jaw when I'm angry. I know what happens if I don't process anger. Mm-hmm. I know two, three days down the road, I'm going to somehow justify, you know, watching something I shouldn't watch. Well, I'm going to go for a walk now, hopefully unclench my jaw in the process and figure out why I feel so angry, right? Like that's the preventative. That's kind of like the pinnacle of self-awareness is when you can actually nip things in the bud before they develop into something worse downstream. Mm. So, that, that's, that- so that's, yeah. I mean, you're, I mean, you're talking about the self-awareness of where do I feel this in my body? Yeah. You know, what do you feel? Oh, I feel anxious. 
okay, where do you feel that? Oh, it's tight in my chest. It's in my jaw. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to miss you generationally on both ends of the spectrum here, but I'm remembering <laughs> when GI Joe cartoons were on at the end of every episode, they, they gave a little practical, like, you know, have a fire alarm up or whatever. And the GI Joe would come out and say, now, you know, and knowing is half the battle. And I yeah. never considered asking, well, what's the other half of the battle? <laughs> like, and, and you're talking about, yeah, knowing is half the battle. The other half is, what does that mean to me and not rushing forward? Because yeah. there's always going to be a book you haven't read. You don't have to rush to the next book. You have to say, okay, wait, what does this mean to me? What do I feel about this? Where do I feel it? Those weird questions of people are like, what do you mean? Where do you feel it in your body? Like, just shut up. Don't try to understand. Just answer the question. Where do you feel it? <laughs> yeah. And most of us can answer that question when we actually stop to think it. Yeah, very true. Yeah. So that's, that's the process, the practical process of pausing that you're talking about. And what does this mean to me before you rush on to the next piece of information? Yeah. Yeah. And now that you mentioned it twice, I think it is worth noting, I, like I've, I'm really fighting this um, information saturation thing. So like I, um, you know, I'm a podcaster myself. I only listen to two podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, I've only read one book for the entire year this year. I just decided I'm going to pick one book. I'm going to try to like know it inside out and really oh, execute I well on it. Oh, I love you. Um, Bless you, boy. Yeah, no, I'm 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 big on it because I th I think the the information overload is a real problem. So, anyways, just yes. a, just a side note there, but yeah, uh, let's let me answer the question about community. So, the way I view community is okay. We have our three pillars. We have you know uh, self awareness, transformation of the heart, and identity. To me, these things are a fraction of their potential if they're done solo. Mm -hmm. um, community is is the gas that really ignites this thing it's it's what really allows it to have lasting impact uh, i'm sure you've quoted this before i love quoting johan hari's ted talk yeah. from 2016 the opposite of addiction is not sobriety it's connection we're big believers in that um i used to do a little bit more one-on-one -on -one work and then just couldn't keep up with it and so i i remember the i still remember the first session i ran with the group and you could just feel the energy. And mm -hmm. there was there was just something going on that I was like, I don't know if I'll, I, I might continue one-on-one -on -one for a bit, but I am not, I'm never going to stop doing groups. And um, I fully transitioned out of one-on-one -on -one now. We do everything in groups for this reason. Community yep. is, is not just what brings the transformation, it's what sustains it. And, you know, just, just to go back to even what I said earlier, like in my own faith journey, community was the thing that allowed me to work through the doubts, go through the ups and downs, um, but reach a place of clarity, you know, a place of health. And I think, I think the same is true in the recovery journey. Um, and that's certainly what we witness. You know, we, we have had people who just do our system on their own and, um, and some of them, they get exactly what they want. And uh, some of them we can tell. Oh, they would have just got more if they would have participated in our in our communal elements a bit more, you know, mm -hmm. because I think that's where the money's really at. And um, we we have another another motto regarding community, which is that he who is most vulnerable heals the quickest. Yes. And so and so community provides a um, I don't know, a, a platform or a breeding ground for that vulnerability, not for the sake of vulnerability, but for the sake of connection that they may heal. So mm -hmm. that's that's how it kind of wraps into our philosophy. Beautiful. All right. So you said uh, you were told by a friend, hey, don't expect this is going to be fixed with relationship, getting married. And so you address that. You started dealing from that. And then you met. Tell me, tell me, I 
I Shaloma. Shaloma. Yeah. What, what, this is not a name I've ever heard before. Explain <laughs> Shaloma to me. Uh, Shaloma is half Jamaican, born and raised in Jamaica, and then half Pakistani. I'm pretty sure her mom named her on that one. I think Shaloma's got a bit more of the Middle Eastern roots. Mm. Okay. So is, is this your bride now? Your fiance? How, how old are you? This was like, you're, you're, <laughs> I'm trying to track with some of these dates. Okay. So I'm 32 years old. Um, and we've been together for six years and married for three. Wow. So tell me about, and be careful. Henry V died of dysentery right in this age. So be careful the berries you eat in the winter. Um, but how has it been? Because, you know, there's an idea of, okay, I'll deal with it before I get married. And then you realize, well, I'm still me. I still feel these things. I still work this. Yeah. So tell me, as you've had a more realistic view before marriage and now you've been married, married, uh, give me that, give me that vista. Yeah. Um, well, I, again, I, I really, uh, I give God glory for that part of my story because I'm um, having this thing out of my life before I met Shaloma has, uh, was, was huge. And I, I knew it, um, because I trusted my mentor, but it's been amazing to experience it. Um, and we, we went through a very tumultuous engagement. Um, she, she basically was bedridden the first six months we were engaged and we didn't know what was going on. Um, and ongoing health issues. Um, her brother wound up passing away while we were engaged. And mm. uh, he was the fifth relative, I think, that we buried while while we were engaged. It was just a bizarre 18 months or so. We went through a lot of hardship together. And man, oh man, would it have been so easy to justify a relapse during some of those days where, mm -hmm. you know, the, the fiance sick, we can't plan a wedding, you know, grandma just passed away and all that kind of stuff. But I, I learned something uh, around the time when we were engaged, when we were going through all this hard stuff. I'll never forget it. Um, we, we've been very religious about, about date night. So Wednesday night is date night. We, we almost never miss. And, um, and it, was, it was Wednesday night. And so I, I had picked her up from, uh, from work or wherever. And that day in particular, uh, I was going through some career struggles as well. And so between just you know the health stuff she was dealing with, our, our wedding, just the date kept getting pushed out. And now, um, you know, some career issues or career crises, whatever you call it, man, I was feeling just super on edge that day and really tempted to watch pornography. And, you know, I was, I was in my office, I wasn't going to do anything, but the thoughts were there way more than they normally are. And I had been clean at that point and, and, um, and recovered for, I don't know, probably two years, year and a half, two years. So th these days were not happening very often. So anyways, uh, my wife and I were also very intentional about our physical boundaries. And I, I believe at the time we, when we were dating, we had actually agreed not to kiss because we had gone physical early in previous relationships. It really messed things up. And we wanted to get to know each other for real um, to make sure that if this was going to move forward, that that the physical part of it hadn't necessarily flavored it. That was just our own stance. Uh, we don't mandate that to, you know, for other couples, but that was just our thing. And I was just, I was kind of putting two and two together. We're driving back to my apartment and I'm just thinking, man, we're going to be alone. I'm like super, you know, I'm just super turned on, super tempted. Uh, we have this boundary and I don't know if I trust myself. That's, that was kind of the, the bottom line in all this. But I was, I was doing what old Sathya did. I was keeping it all within. And so we pull into the driveway and she's just getting out of the car and it must have been the Holy Spirit. And I was like, Oh, I need to tell her, duh, like dummy. Like this is what got you out was, you know, opening up to people. And so I was like, hey, uh, babe, um, just before you get out, I just need to, to tell you something. 
I've been feeling super tempted all day to watch pornography. I haven't done anything, but um, I just want to let you know, and I'm a little bit concerned that you know that I may not be able to trust myself uh, if we go into the apartment. And she had this look of relief on her face, a bit of a smile, and she just said, "Thank you so much for letting me know. Um, I'll pick up the slack tonight." And it was it was just a simple thing, but I learned something. I learned that I would rather confess a temptation than confess a mistake. And so that that has been the um, the plumb line of our relationship as we've kind of gone through all this stuff, hardships along the way, and all of that. It's just trying to keep close accounts. That steady vulnerability with each, with each other has really gone a long way for us. Beautiful. What a beautiful statement that she made. I'm not judging you for saying that. I will pick up the slack tonight. Yeah, I know where you're at. I'll deal with you being stupid, and I will shut your ass down. Yeah. <laughs> no problem. I got it. Cuz yeah. I love you. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm watching the time here and I cannot believe the time has flown so quickly. We're going to have to ask you right now to commit yourself, you know, on the recording that you will come back at some time. <laughs> I would I would love to, Nate. Yeah, absolutely. You okay. just tell me when. Okay. Uh any other well, well where where else do they connect with you we've got the book say yeah. the, say the book site again so that is the yeah, last the last relapse book.com don't go to the last relapse.com because that's like a heavy metal band and i haven't been able to get the name from them are they good i mean maybe uh, it's worth- i don't know i don't think they're even active anymore it's been kind of a kind of a thorn in my side on that one but the last relapsebook.com will get uh your listeners a copy of the book and uh you know if for those of you that are listening to this podcast till to the end you obviously love podcasts um so you can check out unleash the man within that's our daily podcast oh Um, yeah nate mentioned that i do you know 10 15 minute segments four days a week and then one day a week we do an interview with uh stellar people like you i'll have to get you guys on my podcast as well that'd be a lot of fun that sounds great uh, yes, uh, I cannot recommend the podcast highly enough, and I strongly urge our listeners, uh, go ahead, subscribe. That's just, uh, yeah, wonderful. And good on you, Sophia, for uh, being of service in the way you're being of service today. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. All right, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. Man, I got emotional about his uh, wife's response to that that confession. I could see it on your face, man. That took you out, didn't it? It was horrible. I mean, good, good, <laughs> horrible. That was that was rough. I mean, that's that's. Yeah. I I think I think that is what every partner, male or woman, wants in life. Yeah is to be able to say in real time, this is what I'm feeling. And for the other person to say, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I got this. Um, The episode I just listened to today of his podcast. And by the way, I really love the fact that he does those bite-sized shows. You know, it's not a big commitment. You don't have to listen to for an hour to get something great. Uh, a 15-minute show on attunement and how everything changes when you know that people are not just seeing you and hearing you, but listening and getting it. And they're, yeah, 
And, uh, and it's that lack of attunement during our formative years that for many of us set the stage, made us vulnerable to uh, some kind of false intimacy. And then learning the skills of attunement ourselves. I, I've had to face the fact that, you know, I'm not always that really, really that skilled and that good at connecting with people uh, deeply and, you know, uh, on a, an emotional level and picking up on everything that's going on. I mean, the skills are there, but I need to develop them and be intentional. And when I do, that deepens the connection and meets the need that both of us have not to be alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big speed bump in that for me is, are, are the times where I'm feeling like things aren't fair, aren't equitable in any relationship, yeah. whether it's with a kid, a partner, a friend. Yeah. And so once that starts to creep in, I deserve better. This isn't fair. Mm -hmm. Then yeah. I've, I can't hear them anymore because I want to be heard first. I've, yeah. I've picked up the first spot in the queue and yeah. you, you can have your thoughts or feelings, but I have to go first. And it's mm -hmm. really hard to acknowledge that. I, I yeah. still think Steve Taylor had a, a song. It was cash cow the end he mm -hmm. talked about the last time he uttered these three little words i deserve better and that always haunted mm -hmm. me because i realized oh my gosh that is always the that's the rock in the in the railroad tracks that derails this entire train when mm -hmm. it feels like all right i've done enough i deserve better yeah. now it's not fair yeah. and those things might be totally true those things might be totally true but they're also totally unhelpful like they mm -hmm. don't help yeah. anything and they never get me what I'm hoping to get out of it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, in case you didn't catch it, uh, the, the title of Sathya's podcast is unleash the man within. Uh, he's actually on the same podcasting platform as we are on Podbean, So you can listen to him, find it easily on the Podbean app or on other uh, podcast platforms. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. We got plenty more great shows coming your way. Uh, Justin Schwind is just absolutely kicking it on booking guests, great guests. So 2022 is winding up strong. 2023 is looking terrific. Uh, and I, I think we've come to the end of this episode, Aaron. Would you agree? I think so. Okay. Well, then I would say, until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Arg. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>